deep difference is here to stay. That was the starting point for the upbeat, fast-moving conversation you're about to hear on the topic of American religion, politics, and also the kind of temperament needed to make any headway with the growing list of contentious claims and counterclaims about what's just in contemporary American life. This is a recorded conversation among a great group, nine journalists, the president of the second largest evangelical seminary in America, and a Christian scholar who's lived in the Netherlands and studied firsthand its model for Muslim immigration. Right out of the gate, you'll hear one of the Brookings Institution's foreign policy scholars, Faith Angle advisor Shadi Hamid, describe how the theological notion of postponed judgment, as discussed in the Quran, should theoretically make us more aware of our limits. The Arabic phrase used to end fatwas, God only knows, necessarily means something easily forgotten by those of us from every faith tribe. We do not. The conviction that God only knows, theoretically anyway, should make us more humble, more open. But of course, whether it's Muslims, agnostics, evangelicals, Catholics, secularists, or any other tribe represented in the discussion you're about to hear, there's this gap between what we profess and how we act. And according to Mark Laberton, since 2013, the president of Fuller Theological Seminary and a former Berkeley, California pastor and IJM senior fellow, with that in mind, we should recall what Peter Drucker says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. More important than brilliant ideas for cultural renewal. And there were a few of those in today's dialogue. Sociology and our existing cultural practices are far more important than a new take on pluralism or better strategy. The key is our actual habits and the customs of our tribe. Mark is joined today by Matthew Kamink, Associate Dean at Fuller Seminary since 2018, and the author of two recent books that focus on Muslim immigration in Europe, Christian hospitality, and the connections between work and worship. His doctoral work in Holland focused in large part on the life and teaching of Abraham Kuyper, a Christian pastor who founded a newspaper, De Standard, founded the Free University, and eventually led the country as prime minister at the outset of the 20th century. Matthew sees similarities between the way today's Dutch journalists describe so-called backwards, quote-unquote, Muslims who immigrated to Holland, and the way some U.S. journalists writing at mainstream outlets can pigeonhole contemporary evangelicals, making them fit into molds that don't really fit. On that note, one thread worth pondering is Mark's reflection on what he terms a tsunami tide of fundamentalism that overwhelmed American evangelicals like a wave beginning in the 1980s. That dynamic has strongly impacted U.S. politics, particularly in recent years as Christian nationalism has taken deeper hold. Mark argues that in the 1920s, fear played a major role in shaping fundamentalists who returned, quote-unquote, to the doctrinal fundamentals, finding security in theological precepts they knew, could agree on, and could clearly defend. They were known in those years as fighting fundies, or absolutists. Their custom was circling the wagons and looking inward where it was safe. Yet by contrast, as president of Fuller Seminary, Mark says virtually no hero of the Bible fails to doubt, to acknowledge failure, or experience weakness. In an exchange with Pete Weiner of The Atlantic and The New York Times, he says a better course is, quote, skeptical believing, unquote. Especially if you're a religious believer, stick around to hear Mark's own words. But in short, he argues 
the work in any conversation is not merely believing, but staying open to possibilities. In his words, sharing the God you're not sure exists. He reminds us that the Apostle Paul, one of the most learned individuals in all scripture, quote, sees through a glass darkly. So Mark wants more of us, pastors, journalists, those in public life, to speak with simultaneous confidence and tentativeness. The journalists joining this dialogue include those at USA Today, The Washington Post, NPR, The Economist, Politico, Deseret News, and other outlets. The public pluralism framework Matthew proposes differs from other contemporary models because it's not I win, you lose. It's something different, something grounded in Dutch experience for a century and perhaps the more recent Utah compromise, making it much more promising. Deep difference isn't going away. And Mark's closing encouragement to the journalist group and the rest of us too is to think less like a fundamentalist, less closed, less certain of our conclusions, and more curious, more mindful of the public good of all, not merely our own demographic or our own tribe. With the takeaways from today's conversation in mind, going in with just ends in mind, but being a little more open-minded about the journey to get there, often turns out to be far richer than the fighting fundy route. Enjoy the conversation. So I also have uh, the pleasure to sort of introduce and ask a question uh, to my good friend, uh, Matthew Kamink. So just like a little bit of background, I actually think I first got to know Matthew through Twitter, and then we got to know each other in real life. And that was back in the day where you could actually gain things and and learn on Twitter. So those were the good old days. And then I had uh, the honor of, of reading his book before it came out. So his book is called Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration in an Age of Fear. It came out in 2018. And I'm not saying this just because I, I like Matthew. I re- for me, this was a profoundly important and influential book. And it changed how I view a number of issues. And I feel like even to this day, there's still ways the book and its insights have shaped my approach to some of the big questions around pluralism. And one of those reasons, the book, one of the reasons the book is so good is that it helps popularize the work and thinking of a great Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper. And as some of you might know, I've become a bit of an Abraham Kuyper fan, which may or may not be unusual depending on your perspective. And more recently, I've done deeper dives into Kuyper's work, but Matt is really the one who introduced me to this world. And after I read his book, we actually uh, met in real life. And in the last couple of years, we've done a number of sort of Muslim Christian combo dialogues in different parts of the country, where from our own perspectives, me from a Muslim perspective and, and Matthew from a Christian perspective, we try to wrestle with these questions of how to live with deep difference. So with that in mind, I just to start off the conversation, I wanted to maybe just mix it up a little bit and, and push Matt on a question that I've been struggling with. And Matt, you can probably say a little bit more about the concept of postponing judgment, which is really key to Kuiper's thought. And the notion there is we don't have full, absolute, direct knowledge of God's will in this world that because we are human, because we are broken and fallen from sin, 
that there is a kind of natural imperfection that results from any kind of human interaction with scripture or with theology more broadly. And that for this reason, because this world is a site of imperfection, and I think as, as, as many Christians would say, that this world is imperfect until the return of Christ and perfection is only possible with Christ, that has a number of profound implications for how we coexist or live with deep difference in this temporal life. Matthew can talk a little bit more about sort of the theological scaffolding that Kuiper depends on to come to some of his conclusions. But to kind of push Matt on, and all of us really, on some of the practical implications of this idea of postponement of judgment, one thing that I grapple with is, you know, you talk to people, you mentioned the word pluralism and respecting difference, and people's natural instinct is to say, yes, pluralism, it's great. But then when you actually get to how you model pluralism in your own life or in our in our own lives, that's where there's a, a real gap between theory and practice. And as we know, unfortunately, many evangelicals do have a problem with Islam and Muslims and have not necessarily been able to model Kuiper's insights in their approach to their fellow Muslim neighbors. But more broadly, you could say this applies to Muslims in the Middle East, Jews in Israel. It's become a universal problem that we have these resources in our traditions, but we're having trouble applying those resources that speak to the pluralistic ideal, applying them to everyday politics. So Matt, maybe if you can sort of also address that, is how do we start to close the gap between theory and practice? Why is it actually so difficult for people to reflect these ideals in their own lives? And the second part of that would be, we haven't really talked since January 6th and then storming of the Capitol. I'm curious in light of recent developments, whether you're more or less optimistic about the prospects for for pluralism, for deep pluralism in the US? I mean, my guess would be that maybe you're slightly less optimistic, but I might be wrong. Okay, Shadi, a lot of stuff there. Let's see here. Thank you so much, Josh, for for bringing this um, conversation together. You know, as as I recall, one of the things that spurred this conversation was was a recent piece in the New York Times that quoted the name of Abraham Kuyper, this Dutch political philosopher and theologian, and connected it to Christian nationalism and Christian hegemony. And for those of us who study Abraham Kuyper professionally, we were, we were quite shocked by this because Kuyper is this model fighter against Christian nationalism and Christian hegemony. That's sort of the core of what he was about. And I think it goes to just the need for more nuance in, in how we cover issues of faith in general. And really the core of all of these things, Shadi, that you're talking about and that we have to, you and I have talked about in different university campuses has to do with how do we deal with deep difference in democracy? Difference that is increasingly existential, close, fast, and disruptive in our lives, whether it's religious differences, racial differences, uh, political differences. Politics is just becoming more existential and apocalyptic uh, in which we all feel, feel as if, you know, our ways of life are in profound danger every election. And so postponing judgment 
lowering the stakes, lowering the temperature, it seems as if every single religion or worldview is looking for resources or hopefully looking for resources to lower the temperature. And within the Christian tradition, Abraham Kuyper talks about this because he, as a, a Protestant Christian in the Netherlands, was wrestling with a very divided public, divided between Catholics and Protestants, modern liberals and socialists. So the, the country itself was broken into four pieces and they had to figure out how to live together and how to share government space and sovereignty and law. And so there you have a conservative Christian wrestling with how do I remain faithful to my faith and yet also make space for Catholics and atheists and socialists and Jews. And, and he develops this theory of called principled pluralism, where you hold tightly to your principles. Um, but because of those principles, you make plural space um, for others. But in terms of this question of lowering the stakes, you and I have talked a lot about Muslim and Christian perspectives on eschatology, sort of the end times and God's judgment. And this understanding that ultimate judgment belongs to God alone and to grasp that ultimate judgment or that ultimate throne for yourself is not only misguided, but it is an affront to the glory of God and the sovereignty of God that belongs to God alone. And you, Shadi, have shared a number of you know, interesting insights from Islam on this, sort of the delaying of judgment and sort of a humble recognition of what we can know about God's will. And the same exists with, within Judaism and Christianity this sort of humility before the face of God, and then a wrestling with our own sin and the brokenness, not only of our hearts, but of our minds, what we would call the noetic effects of sin. And so that's sort of my opening salvo of what I would have to say there. And then you asked about theory versus practice, right? So it's all of this makes sense in theory. You have this theology of being humble and letting go of your grasp, but then how do you actually do that at a moment like January 6th, right, that is so disruptive, that causes fear and anger and rage and anxiety. When the temperature goes up, do all of your theories about pluralism go out the window? And uh, William Connolly, this philosopher of pluralism that I really enjoy, he talks about how our bodies tense up when we encounter deep difference, religious, racial, whatever it is, but it, they tense up. And we need resources to essentially open our hands and relax our bodies. And when it comes to training the body in the Christian tradition, a lot of that, frankly, is done through spiritual disciplines and worship and prayer and reflecting on our own sin. And right now we are in this period of Lent in the Christian season where we are preparing for this time when Jesus dies and rises again. And so it's, it's a time of reflection. And I think that has public consequences for the Christian faith, right? If we spend 40 days reflecting on our own sin and brokenness and need for a change of heart and mind, that changes the way we interact with other people, or it ought to. So that's, I mean, that's where I would 
That's right. Start. And, you know, I, Mark right now, Mark Laberton here is, is doing a little, you know, reflection on Lent right now, actually. But that's just sort of the start of what I'd have to say. I think, um, first of all, again, I want to add my thanks, Josh, for organizing this and look forward to the conversation interaction. Thank you, Matt, for what you just shared. It's really, really helpful. I think I would add just a couple of things. You probably are know, aware of the phrase that I think Peter Drucker made, that, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I mention it at this stage to say that if strategy is our theological framing, then the culture is what eats our theology. And in a way, the response that came to my mind when you asked Shadi about the contrast of why is theory and praxis so difficult to bring together, because ultimately... <laughs> culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's really what Jesus meant at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he describes in the parable of the, the rock and the sand that we have to actually live out what we affirm, not just actually affirm it. And then in the opening verses of, of chapter eight of Matthew's gospel, there are two really scandalous things that occur, an encounter between Jesus and a person who has leprosy and an encounter between Jesus and a Roman centurion. And in both cases, he acts in the most non-culture-oriented way. He does something that is radically counterculture in both cases. And yet those instincts, I think very much building on what Matt has just said, those instincts come out of a really different place, a sense of freedom rather than anxiety, a place of trust, a place in which pluralism is the reality of the world and not just a philosophical position. And a pluralism in which it's possible to both be deeply orthodox in our affirmations and, and faith, while also being capacious in the way that I think the, the God of the Bible is portrayed to be. And it's in that capaciousness that there's both a capacity to hold true to what we believe is our understanding of reality, and at the same time, to be capacious, this sense of delaying judgment is a really critical aspect of this. But culture says to us, there should be no delay in judgment about anything these days. That's the cultural moment. So it naturally just swamps any suggestion that to delay is to do anything other than but to abdicate or cave in the face of what is seen as a, as a battle that has to be maintained at all times and, and in all ways. That's the vortex I think that we're in and trying to affirm and live out a kind of a delayed judgment is a culturally counterintuitive thing, even in the midst of a theology that I think gives us every reason, every reason to do so. Shadi, this might be a, a good time just to add that. I mean, your reflections, you know, as a Muslim and on, on that delayed judgment, I enjoy that. I believe it's your, the medieval story about the fatwa. Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. So, you know, fatwas obviously have a, a not so positive connotation now, but fatwas are just religious edicts. And it still is done to a large extent today, but fatwas don't get as much attention except the really extreme ones. But in the medieval era, there was this practice that was extremely common, almost universal when giving fatwas. Basically, you would have a legal scholar or, or a cleric giving what could be like a, a very long um, determination or conclusion about a thorny, a thorny religious issue. But then there was the practice that you would end the fatwa with a specific phrase. And that phrase in Arabic is Allahu Alam, which means, and God only knows. 
And basically the idea here is that you can be the most learned scholar in a great caliphate and everyone kind of thinks that you have all these great ideas, but at the end of the day, you're just a human being. And so clerics would kind of develop this habit really of always reminding themselves whenever they were making consequential judgment and you end that way because that's what you want to leave yourself with as as the cleric, but you also want to leave the reader or any audience who is taking this in that don't get carried away. Don't become too confident about your own abilities or anyone's own abilities. God is the only one who ultimately knows. And this relates to a well-known prophetic hadith where basically the system of, relates to the system of good deeds in Islam. So this hadith says that if you are an interpreter of, of God's law and you're striving for the truth, but you end up getting it wrong, you still get one good deed. If you are an interpreter and you get it right, you get two good deeds. So obviously it's nice if you get things right because you get an additional good deed, however you want to calculate that. But still, even the person who in good faith tries as best as he possibly can to discern God's will, but ends up failing because again, humans are flawed, he still is being rewarded by God for that effort. I think it's important just to be honest about what we're, I mean, what we're really getting after here is the modern conception that religion at its core is incapable of democracy, of tolerance, of making space for deep difference. And when it comes to issues of journalism and religion, I really learned this studying in Europe and studying the ways in which Islam was treated by journalists in Europe and Muslim immigrants were depicted in the media. And so often in the European media, Islam is is talked about as medieval, as irrational, as sexist, as backwards, and secular progressive faith is framed as the goal. You know, how might we modernize Islam or how might Islam experience a reformation? So whatever is perceived as wrong within Islam, Europe is the solution. Modernity, reformation, enlightenment. How do we enlighten Islam? It's essentially Muslims are assumed to be the problem and Europe is assumed to be the solution. And so I learned about this watching what was happening to Islam within the media and within journalism. But, you know, turning to this this piece that was written in the New York Times about evangelicals and Josh Hawley and the January 6th piece, the echoes between how evangelicalism was treated in that piece and how Islam is treated in Europe were, were very stark for me. Because in this piece about Josh Hawley's evangelicalism, evangelicalism is treated as anti-democratic, intolerant, irrational, medieval, nationalistic, in sort of very holistic ways. And so, of course, Islam and evangelicalism, being filled with human people, (laughs) have those kinds of actors. But the temptation for journalists is to depict these faith communities in one-dimensional ways. And what jumped out to me was that of course, Abraham Kuyper is mentioned in the piece, and he is this, you know, this profound example of evangelical tolerance and pluralism. And yet the journalist had the desire to paint 
evangelicalism as the problem and secular progressivism as the solution. And so the piece came out very flat rather than three-dimensional. So this is not to say that evangelicalism should not be criticized. It absolutely should. Oh my goodness. And I could, I could do a better job than the journalist of deconstructing the evils of my faith community. It's, it's bad. But it is to say that faith is much, the global evangelical faith is much more complex than that. And we have resources within ourselves to be tolerant and hospitable of deep difference, just like Islam has resources within its history to make space for deep difference and participate in democracy. And so sort of the cry that we have journalists here on the call is that Christianity and Islam are three-dimensional faiths that have a long history of reflecting on these issues of deep difference. You know, I wonder, Matthew and Mark, if I, if I might open that up a little bit, you know, with a theoretical question about what, what religion does offer for modern liberal democracies. I mean, I, for example, recall a journalist interfacing with Shadi last year, even after, you know, talking about this idea of Muslim envy, because there she was in Berlin, and the, the vibrant religious congregations were, in fact, they were mosques. The, the, most of the, many of the, the Christian churches have declined for having made too much peace or bad peace or a different kind of peace with secular liberal democracy. But, but what kind of resources do you see existing within the Christian tradition in the way that you guys are teaching, you know, that do open up a foundation for deep difference and pluralism? For example, I've, I've, I've read from each of you a little bit, and I understand you know, this idea that, like, when the country is divided, and we all know that, right, 74 and 81 million Americans voted as they did, these cohorts aren't going away, and we, we should be expecting that, not hoping to resolve it all. You talked about this idea that the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. That's a, a maxim, scriptural one. Or the wheat and the tares are growing up together, side by side, this stage in, in history, redemptive history. Are there frameworks... Culture eats strategy for breakfast, but are there frameworks that, that, that we do have in terms of strategy or foundation or religious stool to, to work with in the broader uh, modern public square? And then maybe just to raise it because we want to get to the group, are there one or two practical outflows of that? I know you guys are doing some really interesting work uh, on campus around race. What, what's practical from that kind of a foundation, whether it's schooling or radio use or positive neutrality? Maybe Mark, we can start with you. Yeah, several things come to mind. Uh, let's take, for example, the fact that really through the up to about the 1980s, there was two groups that were considered distinct. One were a group of Christians called evangelicals and another group of Christians that saw themselves as fundamentalists. But by the 1980s, for a variety of reasons, fundamentalism like a tsunami washes over the top of evangelicalism and essentially adopts its name. And the evangelicalism that gets the greatest prominence in the press these days is an evangelicalism that I would say is actually fundamentalism that has been relabeled as evangelical for a whole variety of, of different social and stature reasons, as much as for taking a posture of less bias. And so the interesting thing is that now evangelical, which was seen as something that was reforming fundamentalism, evangelicalism now has to be reformed from the fundamentalism that actually has a stranglehold on its identity. And the question that becomes, what are the resources to be able to do that? And how does 
a Christian faith then create a difference? I would argue that a fundamentalist instinct tends to be an instinct of circling the wagons, a kind of sociology that's really defined by who's in and who's out, which does not serve the interests of pluralism very well. I would say that the capacious spirit of evangelicalism is a belief that is grounded in a sense that we see, but we see through a glass darkly. When that, that is spoken of by the Apostle Paul in the 13th chapter of the book of Corinthians, it's coming out of the voice of the most adamant person in the New Testament. There's no voice that's more adamant about Christian confidence of theological knowledge than Paul. And yet it is Paul who says, we see, but we see through a glass darkly. So I would say that text, for example, is a great resource in this kind of an issue that you're raising, because on the one hand, to the fundamentalist, I think Paul would say, no, 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 it, we do not see transparently. That is not, that's actually not our form of knowledge. It is partial. It's through a glass darkly. But to the nihilist or the, a person who thinks that there's no capacity for, for knowledge, perhaps, period, let alone theological knowledge, Paul would say, no, it's actually possible to know something. It's actually possible to trust and have access to that, but it is through a glass darkly. So it's living in that tension. And I would say the best of evangelicalism, and I would say this is where Kuiper also intersects with this, the best of Kuiper has confidence and tentativeness at the same time. That's holding on to both sides of Paul's word. Whereas fundamentalism tends to say, no, it's just, it's just, you're either in or out. It's absolutely clear. If you don't see it, it's your problem. It's not the nature of reality's problem. And it's not God's problem. It's your sinfulness or your insistence. So I think the resources have to do with the way that evangelical culture has been swamped by a fundamentalist attitude, which I would say is not instinctive or necessary in the least from a New Testament vision of what uh, the people of God in the world can be. And, and the ministry of Jesus, I would say, is much more marked, even in the confidence of his own self-revelation with an astonishing kind of humility. One of the texts I mentioned a minute ago is that is that moment in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, where Jesus encounters a Roman centurion and who asks him or comes to ask him for him uh, a favor for a servant who's ill. Uh, and, and Jesus pauses the action and highlights the trust and faith exercised by this Roman centurion who represents all that's dominating Israel's life and says, I have not heard of faith like this in all of Israel. Now, I would argue that's not a fundamentalist statement. That's a statement of shock and surprise, of, of disorder, of unexpected receptivity. And he goes on to say, there will be some in Israel who are inside the kingdom of God who will actually be found outside the kingdom of God and vice versa because of the faith of this man. Now, that's a kind of positioning. It's a three-dimensionality that Matt is referring to that is a, is a much different sense of location. It's not defensive. It's unguarded. It's confident, but it is humble. It's assured, but it's not defensive. And it's in that kind of combination that I think the, the great resources can welcome. And I, I, I really appreciate what Matt said about the need for, for good breathing, and for an embodied sense of engagement that is not tight, that is actually open and receptive to the other rather than uh, anxious and worried and fearful and protective and, and close the circle again, as opposed to open the circle. So 
I think what we're trying to do at Fuller, and I think Fuller's had this instinct historically for many, many different reasons. But I, I think in this era, we're trying to see ourselves as an institution that's trying to turn ourselves completely inside out. How do we make sure that our evangelicalism is as exposed to a positive public uh, face, with a positive public face, and with a serious engagement with all of these issues that are at play, rather than a self-protective posture of how do we protect ourselves and all and clamp down everything in order to make sure that that we proclaim our righteousness and everyone else's unrighteousness. That is uh, lovely and instructive, and I, I feel like truth in advertising is a big part of this whole you know, uh, sport. So maybe we can um, open circle, as you just said, uh, Mark, and get more, more of us on here. I think we're being joined real time here. And then Matthew, feel free to weigh in as well if you want. And Matthew, before we throw it open to the larger group, I know we corresponded about gay rights and religious liberty and a lot of broader themes uh, that could sort of flow from, from Piper. Do you want to say anything about that last query as well? And then we'll welcome in the larger group. Yeah, I think I, you know, we've talked a little bit about how Islam and Christianity have internal resources for their own democratic tolerance and pluralism. But recently I wrote an article giving thanks for Muslims and their presence in democratic life, specifically the hijab, the presence of the Islamic headscarf in public life, because I think it captures why religion public religion matters for democratic health, as opposed to someone like Rousseau, who says, you know, it's impossible to live with those we regard as damned. Actually, public religious presence is really important. And in the headscarf, what it does is, you know, I I live here in Houston, which has a massive Muslim population. And in the grocery store, you know, Muslim women pass by me. And there is a public visual reminder to me that Houston is a diverse place with a wide variety of visions of the common good, that we are, in fact, not united as a nation, and that's okay, and that all of our identities are always contested. And so one of the things that Christians and Muslims and Jews, as they are public with their faith, they actually do a favor to secular liberals in that it reminds secular liberals that their identity too is contested and that their vision of the public life is not shared. Um, And so they live in a diverse uh, democratic community and all of our visions of the common good are contested. And so part of democratic life is living with that deep difference and so, you know, with Joe Biden's call for unity at the inauguration, I was, I was very grateful for that, but I was also just kind of saying, yeah, good luck with that. Diversity is, is abiding and we should not see it as a problem to be solved, but as a fragmentation that needs to be navigated by all of us. And as a Christian, I would argue it needs to be navigated with something like hospitality, where you make generous space for that difference. Maybe let's start, if it works, uh, with Christine Emba from the Washington Post, and then Rob Gifford, and perhaps others as well. Hi, everyone. Um, Great conversation. Thanks for having us. Sorry if I just made a ton of strange faces. I knocked over a houseplant, but it should be fine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that, Matthew, was a great segue into the question that I wanted to ask. You talk about how evangelicalism especially has been 
perhaps maligned or misrepresented as fundamentalist or backwards, et cetera, when speaking of certain public figures. Um, and I've noticed that too in our you know, public conversation about religion, that religion or religious people writ large tend to be placed into that box, possibly because of just the popular examples that come to mind most often. How should Christians and people of faith go about representing themselves publicly to counter those depictions? How do Christians who are, you know, not fundamentalists, uh, not medieval evangelicals who have faith but are, frankly, you know, normal people represent themselves in public to both be visible and visible in contrast to that other set? Because, you know, one sort of person tends to get the most attention and it's usually the partisan argumentative type that may not actually be representative of the faith at large. What would you suggest and to anyone else also? I'll tell a quick story about Jesus. About Jesus. <laughs> I'm an evangelical. So. so in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is being arrested, um, it is dark. There are torches and clubs and soldiers and there's fighting and chaos and fear as Jesus is being arrested. And in many ways, that moment captures our political moment of the day, right? There's fighting, there's fear, um, there's darkness, there's anxiety. And the response that Jesus offers there, I think, is our model. And that is he reaches out a hand, an unarmed hand. He has no knife or sword. Uh, and he heals a person who has come to attack him. And that's a very disruptive moment. And so I think that captures for me the Christian response in this democratic moment. You know, Shadi asked earlier on, am I optimistic or pessimistic about this democratic moment? Like in an important sense for Christians, optimism and pessimism can't be our first question, but just faithfulness. So I think the, the only faithful action I have as a Christian is to continue, continue extending a vulnerable hand to heal those rather than engage in the fight. And uh, democracy actually depends upon irrational acts of hospitality and vulnerability. And the paradox of democracy is that it cannot produce those kinds of acts, but it depends upon citizens continuing to reach out in curiosity and vulnerability. I agree with that very much. Thank you, Matt, for saying that. And I do think one of the most interesting texts to me is that right after Jesus calls his disciples in, in Matthew 4, then he begins his public ministry. And within, as it were, days of that beginning, he's surrounded by people of, of every kind of uh, racial, ethnic, political, social background all who come to him out of a sense of vulnerability and need. And his response is to welcome and receive and engage and try to serve. That is just a, a further pretext, earlier text, that is, for the text that ultimately comes about in Gethsemane, as Matthew just said. Now, living that is a very difficult thing, right? You have to deal with all of the reasons why we're not naturally and necessarily wired to do that. All the fears that we have, all the anxieties, the sense that, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but what if this happens or that happens? And yet in the middle of it, it's also the very place where the possibilities of the greatest kind of reality can be demonstrated. But that requires the, a spiritual transformation, which is why the New Testament talks about this language of having to be remade or reborn, not as a quick fix, not as a, uh, a cheap 
salvo, but as a deep form of personal transformation. And that is meant to produce what the New Testament calls the fruit of the spirit. And that fruit is the thing that becomes the public witness. So that process is, is the critical, I think, pathway to, uh, to do what you're asking, Christine. Okay, so let's go to Rob Gifford, who's staying late at the Economist's offices local in, in London, thereabouts, and then to Tom Jelton of NPR, uh, then to Pete Wainer, and then we got more. So Rob, you're up. Hi, no, I'm in my little Hobbit borough in Oxford, actually. So uh, we, we're not straying pretty very far outside the borough these days. Hi, everyone, and uh, thanks for arranging this. In fact, some of this you just touched on in relation to Christine's question, but I'm interested just because I'm writing about this at the moment. Obviously, there is a there's a problem, there's a difficulty in covering this in the media because it's you know, trying to cover sort of massive theological issues in a thousand words, if you're lucky. But there's also the problem, of course, of the people who shout the loudest. And and this is uh, this is your comment, Matthew, about uh, about Europe. Of course, Islam. I'm sure you wouldn't deny there is a there is a problem, and the bombs going off, and the and and the the extremists are there. But what strikes me in both Islam and in evangelicalism is that the more you dig into it, the more moderates you find, and the more you dig into evangelicalism, the more you find that there's a whole load of people who really, really, really don't agree with Josh Hawley and really, 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 really don't agree with the extreme, loud, shouty people who, who are always heard in the media. And so my question is, and, and you did just touch on it, obviously, but I'm interested in how, and in relation to, to, Christian, to evangelicalism, Christianity more broadly, and Islam, is what can those moderate, what are those more moderate groups doing? And, and Shadi can talk about this with Islam as well. What are they doing to rein in those louder voices. I mean, writing about evangelicalism, it's amazing how many people you've, you hear who are saying, no, I don't agree with that. Of course, I don't agree with January 6th. And of course, I don't agree with um, Christian nationalism. Don't be absurd. I, I, I believe in the Bible. I believe in Jesus. I don't believe in like sort of some crazy sort of na Christian nationalism. What are you, what can you do? What can faith communities do more to be more vocal and to try to rein in those extremes, which are always, and the media sometimes is to blame, but which are always the sort of public face of those religions. Because it's always the quiet ones who you're sitting there talking sense, but they're not the people who are on the goggle box. That's a wonderful question. What are we doing to control these people? So as Protestants, we have a difficulty that we're not able to excommunicate people out of the Protestant movement. So it's a, it's a, it's a free movement, uh, similar to Islam. It's, it's, it's diverse. No one's in charge of this thing. And so we're not really able to uh, excommunicate people. These are our brothers and sisters. And we have to examine ourselves, frankly, for the role that we play. And, you know, our president, Mark Laberton, recently, after the, the 2016 election, I, I believe he and the past president of Fuller Seminary, Richard Mao, you know, issued a statement saying, you know, evangelicalism has been linked to racism and white nationalism. And if we have done anything to make space for, you know, white supremacy, we apologize for that. So part of our role 
is to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, are we playing any role in allowing anti-democratic behavior? And if we are, we need to change that within our institutions and the way we teach and we need to call it out. So, you know, both Muslims and Christians come out with statements and declarations from time to time about different issues of social justice and rights and democracy. But it's, you know, it's, it's part of the issue of being a part of a global faith is you are lumped in with, you know, your brothers and sisters. And one thing that Shadi has said is he doesn't like it when people say, you know, Islam is peace because he, he recognizes, you know, I have to own that I have brothers and sisters who participate in violence and the same with Christianity. I have to own that, you know, Josh Hawley and others that I have serious critiques of there, you know, brothers and sisters in faith. And so it's, it's part of being a part of a group. Well, I think that it's been interesting to me to be recently in several conversations with global theological leaders, really quite a number of them, hundreds of them actually, about the crisis that they experience internationally by the backdraft of American evangelicalism in the press and the way that it affects and disrupts their own sense of evangelicalism, which is not embroiled with the same kind of political paradigm and social paradigm that exists in the United States. So if global evangelicalism, which is a really quite vibrant and I would say largely quite healthy movement, is very, very distinct from a lot of American evangelicalism, which has gotten so embedded in these, in these inter-Nicene culture wars that, of the United States. So it's there's a hunger and there's a, a consternation. But I think, as, as Matt just said, I think very helpfully and, and awkwardly, if we're going to be fair about it all, we have to allow this to be a shared identity and not something that's just trying to push people away and say, well, they are the problem. Even when I said what I said a few moments ago about fundamentalism, I want to say that I, I am not a fundamentalist. I don't see the world in that way. I don't read the Bible in that way. And I do believe that we are part of one common faith. And, and I want to know and seek to love and serve. Now, what do we do uh, when the quieter voices are not as heard? Absolutely, it's the case, as Matt said, that, that this is a, a nobody gets to govern this. It's to my consternation often that God apparently isn't interested in the long game. And I'm always wishing that it was not quite as long as it actually seems to be. And that there would be some greater senses of, of change in many different dimensions than, than we see. That's part of an exercise of faith. But it also means that we have to get on with our own identity. How do you practice your identity? You would have to say the same question about why did Jesus get so little attention in the first century? I mean, obviously a different technological moment, but leaving that to the side, uh, it was in a, a backwater priest rabbi doing his work. It's a strategy that that is not built on scale. It's not built on, on public headline. It's built on reality. And that is a very different set of instincts. So Rob, what you're asking about, I share deeply, how can, how can the conversation be significantly altered? And I think at least in some ways, the answer has to be simply trying to live with integrity, trying to be credible in our own witness and faith. And I think it's important at a moment on an occasion like this conversation to say, we're really glad for any media that is given to the fact that there are many, many, many alternative voices rather than kind of the dominant voice and the play that the way that the power of media plays into the power 
hunger of some Christian voices is an unfortunate but understandable thing. Thank you so much. So uh, let's go to Tom Jelton from NPR and Pete Weiner and Shadi Hamid, and I suspect we'll have others uh, diving in soon. And thank you for occasionally connecting uh, journalist Kelsey Bloom next uh, with some of those voices uh, around the world as well. Uh, right. Tom Jelton. Thank you, Josh. Hello, everyone, um, including my old NPR colleague, Rob Gifford, who's now complaining about having only a thousand words to write about as opposed to four minutes, which is what the rest of us still have. So about 50 years ago, there was a sociologist named Robert Bella who wrote about the importance of having a civil religion in America. And I think he, he defined the civil religion as uh, around the idea of having reverence for certain kind of founding ideals, founding documents, the founders, the Pledge of Allegiance, the National Anthem, almost a religious kind of deference to these notions, that that's very important to the idea of national unity. And he called it civil religion. I'm wondering if you see this, basically what you're advocating is sort of a a return to that notion of a civil religion, and whether in this current backlash against Christian nationalism, there is a danger of sort of going too far and rejecting the very idea of a, of a civil religion. I actually saw a real revival of it after January 6th from the left in America as they described the Capitol as sacred ground over and over and over again. The Capitol was described as sacred and it was a desecration, what happened on January 6th. Now that is religious language. I mean, that is, that is, That's my field. (laughs) And so this idea of civil religion being sort of a possession of the right doesn't quite fit there. And it seems that, you know, at times of great crisis, I think we are revealed as Americans to be much more comfortable with civil religion than maybe we, we like to believe, because I can imagine a lot of those people who talked about Capitol Hill as a sacred place and that as desecration would have also said, I feel uncomfortable with prayer at the opening of Congress. Um, but they would describe Capitol Hill as a sacred place. You know, we, we still sort of fall back on that language because when it comes to issues of politics and sovereignty, as much as we would like to think of it as secular reason, um, there's an awful lot of mystery as we're sort of haunted by the holy you know, what you do there in Congress, the decisions you make, the ways in which you impact the lives of millions of people, all of those Congress people, they're haunted by this sense of what they feel is a holy responsibility. And so it's, I think it's still very much alive in American life. It is more and more detached from the Christian faith and from an understanding of the cross. But American politics is, I mean, those moments, that's Inauguration Day is still very much a high holy day of American life in many ways. And and I think January really brought that to the fore for me, if we ever thought it was dying. I would say that at about the same time that Robert Bella wrote that, he also wrote it within a few years, Individualism and Commitment in American Life, life Habits of the Heart, which was such a significant book. And in, in, as you know, I'm sure in that book, he's making the argument for the for the intractable individuality that lies at the core of American culture. And so the challenge of American civil religion has to do with how American civil religion, whatever that might be, competes with the interests of the individual. 
and whether the individual is or isn't interested in standing together with others in that common, quote, secular faith or, or religious faith. And American civil religion is, is a very difficult thing to hold out a hope for, I think, vigorously because of the way that American individualism is, is, if anything, even more and more toxic and more and more present in American culture. Whereas there was an inherent sense of a sort of moral boundary in which my good uh, should not threaten your good. And I would say there's lots of evidences that even that very baseline of, of uh, American individualism is being contested. And my good uh, should really dominate your good is a view that, of course, many people seem to, to hold. And, and that then raises the question, what can become a moral clarity, even if not a common faith, of course, but a, but a shared kind of moral clarity that would allow different individuals who are living in a culture that nurtures them to seek first themselves, how that culture can also be a culture of, of openness and engagement with competing views and hold in common this kind of civic religion that you're referring to. So Robert Bella was teaching at Berkeley when I was serving at Berkeley and on several occasions I had a chance to talk with him about some of these things. And, and in private conversation, he said, yeah, it's, it's a very difficult thing to hold these things together. And this is partly why it inhabits the heart. He makes the case that there has to be this sense that that we are acknowledging that certain words, for example, are preserved, and they may be religious words, and they may be words that are difficult to use, but words that have to do with human dignity, that have to do with even righteousness, that have to do with human goodness, these words that are to some degree free-floating, but from his point of view, need to be rooted to a kind of moral underpinning, and yet there's little agreement about what that moral underpinning would actually be. So this is where I think the, the spirit of the kind of pluralism that we're talking about today is, I think, able to make a contribution. Wiener with the New York Times and Atlantic. Thanks, uh, Josh, for, for hosting and, and uh, Mark and Matthew for, for participating in this, um, Shadi and, and uh, the rest of you. I'll direct this to Mark and then if you want to piggyback on, that, that, that would be great too. But I was struck, Mark, by your formulation, which I thought was quite insightful and, and, and elegant in terms of your description, which was evangelical culture being swamped by fundamentalist attitude, which, which is quite helpful to me. I would say that it raises an interesting question when that happened, which is what does that say about evangelicalism and fundamentalism, that fundamentalist sensibility was, was able to swamp it. But setting that aside for the moment, I'm curious about how you would describe what underlies the attitude of the fundamentalist sensibility, if it's doctrinal, if it's circumstantial and cultural. And I think what you said is very important. I'm not a fundamentalist, but I think that that, that makes it more important for me to try and understand the world from which they come and their perspective from which they, they come. And then the second related question is, if you were to think of this, say in a 10 year time horizon, none of this is gonna happen quickly, how do you think generally, uh, Mark, about how you move away from, let's call it the fundamentalist sensibility, not even to an evangelical sensibility, but to a biblical sensibility or a Jesus-like sensibility? Do you think of it, obviously some of it is personal, do you think of it as institutional, but it is so deep now, and the degree to which debates today 
are not debates so much about issues, but about fundamental identity. I'm struck time and time again that when I have conversations with people, the reaction is that my identity is under attack, not that we're debating X issue. And you can't argue people out of emotions and passions. You just have to find some other way. Yeah. Those are such good questions, Pete. If you go back to the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the 1920s, what you find is mostly fear that the rising place of rationalism and secularism out of Europe and its influence in American theological circles and and educational circles became like a toxin that the fundamentalists wanted to fight. And it wanted to fight on the grounds that they had not only a belief in an absolute God, but absolute knowledge of an absolute God. And so much of the the kind of embattledness of that debate had to do with claiming the ground, claiming what they believed was the, quote, the truth, and doing it out of a sense of, of truth as something that lies at the core of a community that surrounds it and defends it, right? That's the that's the posture of that. And when it, it sort of goes their way, and you're either a fundamentalist or you're a modernist, then it turns out that by the, by the middle of the 20th century, there's this rise of evangelicalism as a more distinct movement in between the two, not as a midpoint, but as a third way. And uh, that affirms both orthodoxy and engagement and, cult- and culture. You end up having institutions like Fuller and other schools that are founded. You also end up seeing uh, something like Christianity Today founded. Those are all examples. You also see, interestingly, the development of a lot of Christian development organizations and a different sort of response to global as well as national engagement. So I think that in that context, what you see is a spirit that is more generative, it's less defensive, it's more servant-hearted, it's more open and responsive and flexible. Whereas fundamentalism is sort of by definition, a kind of, as the, it isn't by accident that there's the phrase fighting fundies, right? That's sort of a, not just an alliteration, but a natural synergy that comes out of a feeling that the world is, is locked into battle between good and evil, that God is the victor, that we have to be on God's side, and that that God has uh, set the church up to be God's defender in the world. That's just a posture that I don't embrace. I don't think it actually is what the Bible teaches about the character of the of reality, but it does create, I think, a cultural instinct inside fundamentalism that's all about guard the faith, defend, 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 which can also mean then assault, 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 based on, on uh, how you want to manifest that. How you um, change this in a long picture is the work of of institutions like Fuller and and many other schools that are attempting to try to figure out how do we form people with the kind of reflection and engagement that engages in pluralism in the way that we've been talking about it, that acknowledges that we are part of a very complex world in which we do believe that God has actively worked and been self-revealing in Jesus Christ, is accessible uh, in knowledge through the teaching of the scriptures, through the witness of the church, through reason, etc. And so it is a long road again, and it's about it is about personal formation. I think in terms of institutional formation, it's about trying to deliberately raise as many flags of alternative vision as possible. And I'm just amazed, actually, at how much secular hunger there is for a deep Christian faith that is credible, that is humble, not totalizing, 
that is acknowledging of a world of complexity. I've written a manuscript that I've never done anything with yet that's called Skeptical Believing, Possibilities for Knowing the God You're Not Sure Exists. And I share that only to say that to me is a place where there's a huge hunger. It's what I've sometimes said, fundamentalism presents itself as true believism. It's this way or it's no way. And I would argue that biblical faith is not true believism. There's no hero of the Bible that isn't also represented as a doubter, as a struggler, as a person of weakness, as a person who acknowledges failure. Well, I am certainly all of those things and more and worse. So I have a long way to go in all of this. And I'm a skeptical believer. I'm not a true believer. Um, If true believism equals a world without doubt, a world without skepticism, a world without pain or complexity or alternate narratives. So, Was there anything in the last four or five years that made you question the balance between, as you'd say, evangelicals versus fundamentalists? In other words, did you, did you discover that there were more fundamentalists than you thought, or that there were more problems, as it were, within the tribe that you're a part of than you, than you thought? Uh, and I guess specifically, if Wheaton says, what, 80 million evangelicals or so in the country, 24% of the population, maybe 85 million. Is there any sense of the breakdown? Well, it's a historic uh, fact, of course. This is true of every religion, as far as I know. The tension between the religious claims and reality claims of a certain picture of faith and the cultural realities that people live in have always lived in tension, and they come and go in their connection and which defines which. And for a long time, I felt as though evangelicals, for example, are blind to the fact that our faith is more sociological than it is theological or spiritual. So what I do think became stunningly clear was that I would argue that so much of what's called evangelicalism is really a story of sociological narrative, social location, racial supremacy, in the case of white supremacy, a whole tangle of other factors. And the Christian faith lives awkwardly and often unengagingly with those social realities. So then if the social reality seems threatened, then people use their faith to wrap up their social critique and to buttress what is really a whole variety of of underlying social problems that they want to handle through a very thin layer of Christian language. Okay, Shadi Hamid, a wisdom of crowds, the Atlantic and other places we're up. Yeah, so I uh, just two comments. One is on the civil religion issue. And I think that one way that I look at it is we as Americans, we all in some sense believe in an American idea. But I think that's part of the problem. That there's a dark side to this because it's not like, say, the Netherlands during polarization, where if you were part of a Calvinist community, you didn't expect to absorb the socialists because they were separate enough. The issue here is that everyone thinks they have purchase on the American idea. And in that sense, we're evangelizing to other people to agree with our conception of the American idea. And that makes it almost a conflict within the faith. And I think this makes it, if we start to see it that way, then it can maybe help, but it also, I think, complicates the question a little bit because my sense is that we're not going to agree on what the American idea stands for anytime soon. And the ideas of what America means have grown further and further apart. Like you can have a woke person who thinks that they're being true to the progressive ideal inherent in the American story, but then you'll have someone who stormed the Capitol who thinks they are representing 
the true American idea. I don't have an answer to what to do about that, but just to kind of put that out there. And then just a comment quickly on them. It was from a while back. I think Rob Rob talked about the issue of uh, moderates in the Muslim community, but it, it applies also to Christians. We've been talking about that too, which is I do worry a little bit about this desire, which is understandable, to find moderates, to search for them, and then to elevate them as being the ones who correctly represent the faith. First of all, I mean, in Islam, we don't really agree on who the moderates are. And that's actually one of the points of division. And the word moderate is often weaponized and is used to describe kind of fluffy secular Muslims. And the question is, is that really helpful when when we when moderate becomes equivalent to secular or liberal that in some sense a muslim has to domesticate their sense of religious conviction or commitment in order to meet an arbitrary threshold of oftentimes western defined moderation and the other part of that is it is just me personally i have a policy of whenever there's a terrorist attack committed by a Muslim, I will not offer a condemnation because I don't think that I, as an individual Muslim who has, I see the argument that we have to feel a sense that we want to help the broader group or the broader community. At the same time, I also see myself as an individual who happens to be Muslim and that if I had been born in some other way, I would not be Muslim today. So there's something accidental about it. So to feel that I have to sort of bear some collective responsibility and give a disclaimer to people, like, let's say on Twitter, like a terrorist attack happens, and I feel pressure to say, I condemn in the strongest possible terms, this terrorist attack, I feel it sort of, it reifies, I think, a problematic dynamic where there's an expectation that all Muslims, even if we're Muslims who live in America, who have nothing to do with conflicts abroad, that we have to speak on behalf of our of our brethren who commit terrorist attacks or other acts of violence or whatever. So I, I think there's a tension there. I don't know quite where the right middle path is, but I think there is a danger in the idea of responsibility for the rest of our co-religionists. I'll just name, we've got Kelsey Bloom of USA Today and Damon Littman of, of Politico on deck. And uh, Matthew, you want to I wanted to speak first to the issue of American civil religion. I think that um, comparing to my time in Europe, there's a profound optimism to the American spirit, as it is said, you know, of what Americans can do and what we can accomplish. And I think optimism is a fair word to apply to American civil religion. And that is in part why January 6th was so traumatizing was because it was this profound realization that America is not exceptional in sort of these ways that we we imagine ourselves to be. And so I would say that the, the profound optimism of American civil religion and American democracy and what we can, you know, accomplish together is a danger for our democracy because those on the right and those on the left believe that they can accomplish things through political action that they really can't, you know, they can't make America in their own image. You know, those on the right want to make America into their own image. And frankly, those on the left as well, like they, they want to see America become more secular, more progressive, more, you know, enlightened. And that is the fundamental temptation of political life, is to make others into your own image. 
And American civil religion is very optimistic about its ability to bring, you know, out of many, one. And so to force some kind of religious unity, uh, you know, racial unity, uh, to, to rush that and to sort of stampede over deep differences. And so I would say, now on the opposite side for Europe, there's, there's sort of a political pessimism that I would say is part of Europe's problem right now. But for, for, for Americas, uh, you know, we have to look out for that, that optimism. Let's jump to Kelsey Bloom. Hi there. I'll direct this question to Matthew, but I'd like to hear Mark's take as well. Just to bring in an immediate real world problem, I'm curious about your take on the Equality Act. And as you know, it explicitly says that RIFRA, the Equality Act, would trump RIFRA, and uh, an entity could not use RIFRA, the Challenge Act's provisions, or use it as a defense if, if a claim is made against an entity under the Equality Act. So is this an effort to stampede over deep differences in America? Is this a different kind of fundamentalism sensibility, fundamentalist sensibility at work? And how important is the preservation of RIFRA when it comes to preserving pluralism in America? Yeah. So, so can you tell me just a little bit more about sort of behind the question, what, what do you see as, you know, the potential, the de- potential downsides there of the Equality Act? Can you just tell me just a little bit more? Well, that's interesting. Do you not think trumping RIFRA is a downside? I mean, that's a question to you. Is, is it a downside or not? Maybe, maybe is the Equality Act so valuable that it should trump RIFRA? Yeah, I, you know, to be honest with you, I am not as, I'm not aware of sort of the details. Uh, of let me help just a little bit. You know, basically the idea is that LGBTQ Americans would be protected as a class to have uh, fair housing and the opportunity to be hired and fired freely on the basis of merit, to be able to marry and be reinforced in that across all the states, not just those that are already, you know, on board with gay marriage. And that also the ability of Christian colleges, Jewish colleges, uh, Muslim schools and the like, to teach their people, their students on campuses and the like, would not uh, be allowed to, uh, to do that freely and at least take federal Pell Grants and, and federal aid. So for example, a student can't go to Fuller Seminary if Fuller Seminary is saying things that are contrary to the reigning philosophical congruence of the, of the legislation on the LGBTQ question. So it's essentially uh, prioritizing LGBTQ rights at the expense of religious freedom rights on campuses and in other institutions. Yeah, yeah. So that's 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 a big problem. And Abraham Kuyper is is really helpful on this because that puts you into conflict not only with evangelicals, who I think you know people immediately have in mind, but with the Jewish community, with Muslim communities, Catholics, Mormons, and. So it, 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 it really is this interesting conversation and, and conversations are going on. I know, you know, behind the scenes between the LGBT community and faith communities in general, um, but it really has to do with the pluriformity of social communities of different forms of education that are rooted in different worldviews and ideologies about what the good life is. And it is sort of a question is, is the state a totalizing force that can rearrange diverse faith communities and the ways in which they raise their children, the ways in which they educate and study and do scholarship, or is um, the state's task 
to do public justice to diverse faith communities and create spaces, unique spaces where unique forms of human life can develop. And it's it's a complex issue. And that's why I was kind of a little bit hesitant and also wanting to know just a little bit more about what's going on there. But Shirley Hookstra at the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities is really excellent on this. And I would highly recommend that you engage with her. I would also recommend the Center for Public Justice in Washington, D.C. and Stephanie Summers. She is really thoughtful on these issues. But in the Netherlands, which has this political philosophy of pluralism, which we've been talking about, you have Muslim schools, Protestant schools, Catholic schools, Buddhist, atheist schools, and they are allowed to speak and teach children out of their worldview and receive equal support from the government because they believe, and this comes from this thing, that the the government can't choose winners and losers. The government doesn't have the authority to say, this worldview wins and this worldview loses. Now, the Dutch government has some basic requirements, like you have to teach math and you have to teach history and so forth, but they want to create generous space for diverse worldviews to have their own community expression. Now, when it comes to issues of LGBT rights, the state also has a responsibility to make sure that that community has access to healthcare and to voting and to education and all of those things. But it's not going to pulverize religious communities and their unique identities across the nation to ensure that. So it wants to make generous space for deep diversity. Can I just say 30 seconds, because I think people on the call, if they're not familiar with it, might be interested. I I wrote a piece last year with Jonathan Rausch on the Fairness for All Act, which is a counter uh, piece of legislation to the Equality Act. The reason I mention this is the model of Fairness for All is what happened in Utah. And what's particularly interesting to me is that what is one of the hot-button culture war so-called issues, which is homosexuality and this intersection of faith and LGBTQ rights, has actually, by the way that they, they did it in Utah, created deeper understanding on both sides. And there are real friendships that have developed among the, the Latter-day Saints community and the gay community. And it's a kind of a model for how you can really turn the wheel in the other direction, even on these contentious issues. So quite apart from the merits of the Fairness for All Act, which which I'm in favor of, that model in Utah is one that I find quite interesting. I just want to add, as a Utah reporter, the bonus of that Utah law was that it did not touch on public accommodation. So that sort of helped it resolve um, and and move through. But you saw some of the perhaps positive side effects of it in this legislative session because they've they've been unable to pass a law banning transgender women participating in women's sports. They sort of stepped back and said, this is too controversial. This is harmful to the LGBT community. And so it feels like maybe that's a spillover for that from those positive relationships that Pete just mentioned. Great example. I would only add that uh, that it has to be acknowledged that a lot of the ferocity that has been driving the Equality Act has been the problem of religious prejudice and bigotry, which has caused so much pain and suffering to people. So this doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of a reaction from some real wrong that has been done in the name of Christian faith in a way that 
has seriously abused and injured people's lives. And that has to be taken with the deepest seriousness. The question is, what do you do about that? And, and unfortunately, what this feels like is simply secular imposition that now is as equally bigoted toward religion as religion has sometimes been bigoted toward LGBT rights and LGBT people. So the reason why I too think that the Fairness for All Act is, is promising, if, if perhaps unlikely to pass, it's promising because it's naming the kind of more complex reality that we've been, I think, trying to talk about here today, that is not the cardboard reality of the Equality Act, which really is is just, it's inadequate for many reasons, but it's inadequate from my point of view because it's, it's sort of a two-dimensional answer that ends up resulting in simply another form of bigotry against all kinds of people of many, many different religious faiths. So it's a problem for all those reasons. However, the, the question of how do we make sure that we legitimately as a nation allow for and affirm and defend the LGBT community and its own rights, that's, that's a very, very uh, not only legitimate, but essential thing that we need to be attending to. This fix for that doesn't seem to me to be the right one. Really helpful. And we did a pair of, of Faith Angle podcasts on Fairness for All, one with Shirley Hoekstra, who was just mentioned by Matthew, and, and then also another one that's going across from Peace and Council this year. Let's turn, if we can, please, to uh, Daniel Lippman with Politico for maybe a final question. Maybe we'll get a final comment as well uh, from Rob. I know time is tight. Daniel Lippman. Thank you, Josh, and thanks, guys, for doing this. I guess I, I just had a kind of a final question, which is what role do American political leaders should play in promoting American pluralism and kind of enhancing civic religion, you know, without veering, you know, into church v. state issues, but just what do you think they should do to promote those, you know, important concepts? Do we have to look at putting that in civic education more in public schools or, you know, kind of what's your take on that? Matt probably has more detailed answers to that, but I guess my response is that significant political leaders have the capacity to set the table. And if the table is set as a gracious, open table where people can, can bring their passionate differences and commitments to a serious engagement with one another, to cultivate a, a kind of social well-being that's built out of hospitality, that's not built out of winners and losers, is a huge part of what could rhetorically change the game. And I do think it was interesting to me that the Obama era followed by the Trump era was a reaction to that. So in some ways, Obama could be described as somebody who was attempting to open a certain kind of table, whatever else I might want to also say about that. Nevertheless, I'd say fundamentally, he was trying to set an open, more generous table. The reaction to that was absolutely not. We do not want a generous table. We know just exactly uh, what we should be, and we're going to be this instead of that. And then it, it shuts down, but then it explodes because that's that's an impossible thing to, to defend ultimately in a pluralist culture. So I think there's a capacity, albeit a very difficult one, to try to figure out how do you set that table and then maintain it in a way that is, to use the language we were using a minute ago, a position of fairness for all, not just fairness for some over and against others. I think for, for politicians and journalists, the temptations are, are similar in one-dimensional versus three-dimensional understandings of faith and interlocutors. So I grew up with Jerry Falwell constantly being on CNN as the evangelical voice. And I was so confused by that because he didn't sound like any of the evangelicals that I knew. 
but he was constantly the one being drawn upon as, as the evangelical voice. Michael Ware, who I've really come to respect on the Democratic side, an advisor for Obama on faith issues, is really, you know, very thoughtful. And he's been very encouraging of Democrats to be much more engaged than they were in 2016 with diverse faith communities in really um, listening um, to more than just the faith communities that agree with them and understanding that there, there actually are a lot of voters out there that voters of faith that, that could be drawn into the broader coalition. And, you know, Rob earlier brought up this, you know, the challenge of the 1000 word column. I did want to return back to that. The challenge of the journalist in, in writing about religion, I think is even in a thousand words, whether it's an article or a political speech for a politician, you can leave the sort of opening that Shadi talked about with the fatwa. You can actually do that in a political speech and in, a, in an article's column in that, you know, in the final couple lines of your column, you leave it open, this openness to the complexity of religion rather than you close it down. I mean, one of my favorite things about The Economist, and I'll speak specifically about The Economist, is often the articles will end with, a sort of playful, open-ended question rather than a conclusion about religion. And aside from the, the punned titles, but the, just sort of the, the openness, I think is so important for the politician to speak to the openness of faith. That faith, as Mark was talking about, the, the darkness of the fundamentalist is they close down the questions and they close down the mystery. The best of what faith does is open us up to the mystery and complexity that we cannot hold, that we cannot control, but we, we stand in awe of something that is larger in our own understanding. And I think that journalism and political speeches that engage in issues of faith need to open up our imagination rather than close it down. And so to recognize that politicians are capable of fundamentalism, and so are journalists in how they talk about religion and how they use religious language. And so better political speeches and better political articles open up possibility and imagination about faith. This is a great reminder as we close out to name that I plan to read everybody's writing for the next three or four days. And if you write something that closes with only God knows, it goes right back to Shaddy. We're going to know where it came from. And if it's about a skeptic, it's going to go back to Mark Labrador's inquisitive faith uh, reading. Uh, thank you very much. Mark, did you want a closing word as well? Thank you so much, one and all, for, for, for joining across a number of time zones. Only really just to say thank you to everyone for your interest in these things and your engagement. And to also say that, that I think it's the spirit of faith angle from the beginning that these kinds of exchanges could happen and that the landscape of how people involved in journalism can get insights at least to some degree into what's happening in the religious world is really a very, very important task. And religion is not going away in America. Whatever shape it takes, it is here. And it's going to stay, I think, vigorously here, but it will morph and manifest itself in ways that are, I think, going to become ever less recognizable from what we see now, but perhaps in some cases more authentic, in other cases more difficult. So keep following the stories because it's a field rich with possibilities. Faith Angle exists to connect religious leaders and their teachers with mainstream journalists. Thanks for listening.